I don't know how many of us here are fans of a TV show from I guess it's previous decade now, the TV show The Office. I don't know if that's one that anybody's watched. It's one that Megan and I have enjoyed uh, through the years and gotten some good laughs from. And um, If you're unfamiliar with the show, it's, um, it, it's one that it's based on the everyday working lives, especially of employees at a local branch of a fictitious paper company. And uh, the TV series was, I, I think it was a success just largely because of the interactions between all the, all the employees, all the different characters on the show. Um, the, the boss of the office, uh, named Michael Scott, is, is a, a lovable, passionate, yet many times inept individual. And, and there's one particular episode where he had, uh, he had promised a, a local third grade class that he would pay for all of them to attend college if they would just make it to, to high school graduation, graduate high school. Um, Scott's Tots, if you remember that episode, if you're a fan. Um, well, ten years after that promise, uh, Michael didn't possess the wealth that he had planned or maybe hoped to possess by that point. And so he visits that class of students during their senior year and tells them that he can't fulfill his promise, that he can't pay for college like he said he would. And, and the show's a comedy, so it's done in a, in a pretty humorous way, but, but that's kind of the thrust of that. He, he couldn't do it. He had made this promise. He had, he had uh, given a lot of hope to a, to a class, but couldn't follow through with it. Well, the, there was also a real-life promise that was made in a similar fashion by LeBron James a number of years ago. Back in 2015, he, he promised to pay college tuition for over 1,000 third through seventh grade students who were enrolled in this program that was part of his foundation. And, and, it's, and that was about eight years ago. It's been eight years since that promise. And, and not only has he carried out that promise, but he has continued to pay for additional kids from Ohio to, to attend college. And he's even opened his own K-12 uh, school in Akron. Um, now, now, thinking about those two situations, I realize Michael Scott's a TV show character. LeBron James is actually a real person. But... but uh, I want to take just a moment to just think about the promises that both of them made, very similar promises. They, they both, both men were emotionally moved by the circumstances of underprivileged kids in their community. Uh, both men wanted to, to take their emotions and, and do something about it, move it into action. Uh, both men made a genuine promise to the kids that they would financially provide for them to attend college. However, only one of them followed through with the promise that they made. Now, now when you think about the kids, you think about the, the, the classes, right? Upon hearing that promise made to them, no doubt each group of kids possessed hope, right? There was hope that came with that promise. And hope is great. Hope affects our lives. It affects our physical health even. But hope in and of itself, if it is not anchored in something stable and trustworthy, will come crumbling down, will show itself to be lacking something. 
And that's what we're going to focus on this morning. Hope is going to be going to be what, what we look at today. Now, now last week, I, I began an Advent sermon series where we are unpacking a statement from Hebrews chapter 4. And so I want to read those verses for us again to get us started. Um, if you'd like to turn there, it's Hebrews chapter 4, uh, starting in verse 14, uh, page 1003 in the Pew Bibles, if you'd like to look there. And so the writer writes, verse 14 says, Since then... We have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And so the question that we're asking over these weeks is, what does it look like to draw near to God's throne of grace with confidence? Uh, what kind of posture do we have as we do that? And, and so last week, we talked about a posture that is faith-rooted. Faith-rooted. The only reason we can ever approach God's throne and find grace is because of Jesus, our great high priest. It's his love for us, his work upon the cross in which our faith must rest. We trust that Jesus himself has opened the way for us to come before God. So last week we were talking about a posture that's faith-rooted. Today we'll shift gears a little bit and we'll talk about a posture that is hope-anchored. Hope-anchored. And Uh, If you would, turn with me probably just to the next page, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19. We're going to see where this hope is written about. So Hebrews 6, 19 says this. It says, We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, just in simply reading those two verses, 19 and 20, we may have a few questions about what exactly the writer's talking about. How how is hope a sure and steady anchor, steadfast anchor? In what is that hope placed? I think those are questions that we ought to ask. And, and these two verses come at the end of a passage of Scripture. So, so really to answer those, we've got to go back to the beginning of, of kind of the train of thought that the writer has. So, so to do that, we need to go back to chapter 5, verse 11. And if we start there, then we can trace things up until he makes that statement at the end of chapter 6. So... So if you would, look with me at chapter 5, verse 11. I'll just start reading, and and, and we'll talk about some of the things he mentions here. So he says, About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he's a child. But solid food is for the mature, 
for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. So we'll just stop right there for now. What the writer's doing here is he's urging the believers to pursue greater maturity in their faith. He's, he's challenging them a little bit. Um, he urges them not to be complacent in their faith in Jesus, but to seek greater depth in it. What he says is, well, they, you know, they, they shouldn't still be arguing about the reality of faith apart from works and, and the lack of spiritual cleansing that comes as the result of external ceremonial washing. He mentions some of those things in, uh, in verses 1 and 2. He says, you know, you, you, should, you should be beyond those things by now, not, not getting rid of them, but, but having moved on to other things as well. And, and, and the picture that he uses to spur them on is of milk and solid food. Now, it's obvious, right, when a child is first born, they're not ready for solid food. Their, their stomach isn't ready. Their throat isn't ready. Their mouth isn't ready. They're just not ready for that. What they need is milk. But as that child grows and, and matures, they progress to eating solid food, which contains the nutrients and the energy that's, that's needed, that their bodies need to continue to thrive and to grow. In an eight-year-old child, for example, that, that still drinks nothing but milk is going to be developmentally behind. It just will be. Likewise, when a person first puts their faith in Jesus, when they're a new child in the faith, basic principles are what is needed. Uh, a, a, a theologically robust and complex discussion about the hypostatic union is going to benefit a brand new believer about as much as putting steak into the mouth of an infant, right? There's not going to be benefit there. But as that follower of Jesus grows in, in his or her knowledge of and experience of God, they, they become ready to, to add things to those elementary doctrines. Now, it takes more effort to eat a balanced meal than to drink a glass of milk, right? <laughs> it's a lot easier to just open the fridge, pour a glass, and be done with it. It takes, takes time, energy, planning in, in preparing a balanced meal, but, but the benefit is much greater there. And the writer of Hebrews is, is urging the believers to pursue that, that balanced meal in their relationship with Jesus. They ought to wrestle with those complex situations in life. They ought to step out in their faith in ways that, that will grow their trust in God. And it's a good challenge for us, too. We ought, we ought not be satisfied with, with having a faith in Jesus that, that amounts to a glass of milk. Right? Now, now, newfound faith in Jesus is real faith, and there's real salvation there. So don't hear me wrong. That's very real. But God is always calling us to exercise faith and, and, and step deeper into relationship with him. That's what the writer's urging the believers here to do. It's what we can hear from his words as well. So, so there's some in the church that he's writing to who needed to be urged to continue maturing in their faith. 
But there were others connected with the church who weren't true believers and needed to hear something different. And so he goes on and gives a warning. And, and while the writer has been using language like, like we and us and you, that, that's, those are the words he's using in those first verses, in verse 4 he shifts. He shifts and he starts talking about they and them. So, so listen to what he says here. Verse 4, uh, Hebrews 6, 4. He says, For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying, once again, the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. So the writer gives a, a necessary warning to those who've heard the message of the gospel, those who maybe even like things about the message of the gospel, but haven't truly received it, haven't truly given themselves over to Jesus, how dangerous it is to interact with the gospel message, but then to reject it. it, it it's similar to being inoculated in a medical sense. Right? That type of thing is great when it comes to a vaccination. You know, a person is exposed to just enough of a disease that it, that it doesn't affect their health, but builds immunity to it so that they can resist the real thing. It's great for staying healthy. It's great when it comes to that kind of vaccination, but that's a great danger for the gospel. Being exposed to just enough of the gospel that it, that it builds immunity against it is, is spiritually destructive. And, and that's the warning that the, that the writer's giving here. Um, the, the language of verses 7 and 8 really links to Jesus' parable of the soils that he gives in Matthew chapter 13. If you remember that parable, the, uh, it's about a sower who goes out and, and spreads seed in a, a field where there's four different kinds of, of soil. And, and, and Jesus tells us that the seed represents the word of God and the soils are different responses to the word of God. Now, the, the second and the third soils in the parable, the, the rocky ground and the thorny ground, if you remember, um, they describe the reception spoken of in these uh, verses in Hebrews 6. Those two soils have interaction with the gospel. It, it, it falls on them. But the gospel does not bear fruit in that parable, and it by not bearing fruit, proves that it was never received and, and it's just ultimately unproductive. The only, the only, true, only truly saved people in that parable, the soils, are represented by the fourth kind of soil, the one that bears fruit. And similarly, the, the warning here in Hebrews 6, it's, it's not to those who are true believers. It's not. If it was, the writer would have continued using the we and the you and the us language. He would have spoken that way, but he doesn't. 
Instead, the, the warning is given to those who, who have been around the gospel. They've, they've heard the gospel, maybe even outwardly nodded their head in agreement with the gospel, but yet haven't received it into their hearts and into their minds. Now, now sometimes this passage is, is taken and is used as a warning to Christians, as those who truly, a warning to those who truly are believers in Christ. You know, it's a warning that you must be very careful how you live so as not to lose your salvation. And, and it really can lead a person to accept Jesus, you know, that, that phrase, do that like dozens and dozens of times just to be sure, right? It's not what this passage is saying. Really, it's not what the rest of Scripture is saying either. Now, if you're hearing these words this morning and you know what the Bible says about Jesus and maybe even like the benefits of a church community, but the words of faith that are in your mouth aren't what is in your heart. When I say words of faith, I should just say the words in your mouth aren't in your heart. Then then there needs to be a warning that is heard, right? The Bible contains ample warning about essentially being inoculated to the gospel. Um, humble yourself before God. Come, come and genuinely receive Jesus into your life. For all of us who've done that, for all of us who have faith in Jesus, we've been redeemed by Jesus. We're saved by grace through faith in him. We don't need to doubt. We don't need to question our, our salvation. Quite the opposite, actually, in this passage. The writer goes on. We left off in verse 8. He goes on in verse 9 to talk about confidence for believers. And as he does so, the language shifts again. It shifts back to the we and the us and the you language. He's talking to the church again. So I, I, I want to I read that, and, and again, just, just notice, notice the confidence that, that the writer is, is writing with here, what he's, what he's saying to the church. So uh, chapter 6, verse 9, says, Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust, so as to overlook your work and the love that you've shown for, for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So in verse 10, by, by, by talking about the fruit that has been produced, the writer essentially f- affirms that the believers he's writing to are that fourth kind of soil. There's, there's fruit that's been produced. There's genuine faith that has taken root in their lives. They, they have truly received the gospel, and so they don't, they don't have to fear the warning of the previous message. Rather, the writer longs for them to have the full assurance of hope to the end. That's what he says. So while there's warnings to those who dabble in the gospel but don't receive it, there are promises made to those who are sons and daughters of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And those promises are what leads to great hope. We're going to get to hope this morning. Remember, that's what it's all about. Promises lead to that hope. 
And before he talks about the substance of those promises, he talks next about the one making the promises. And, and in that opening illustration that I used with, with Michael Scott and LeBron James, the one making the promise matters. <laughs> it matters, right? Where we put our hope matters. So before he talks about the substance of the promise, he talks about the promise maker. So look with me at verse 13 of Hebrews chapter 6. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having, waited, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. So the promise maker in our text here is God himself. There's promises made to those who are sons and daughters of God, and God himself is the one who makes those promises. But, but once again, a promise is great, can lead to hope, but it's only as good as the one who made it. And the writer gives us two reasons why we can trust God to keep his promises. He's saying, let me show you why God is trustworthy. First, he says that God has shown himself to be trustworthy in the past. And, and he references here Genesis chapter 22, where God promised to Abraham that he would bless him and, and multiply his offspring like, like the sand of the seashore and the stars in the sky. And that promise came on the heels of the scene with Abraham and Isaac on Mount Moriah. So if you remember that story, God called out to Abraham and told him to go with Isaac to, Mar to Mount Moriah and offer Isaac there as a sacrifice on an altar. Um, Abraham walks in obedience, one step at a time, not sure what's going to happen because Isaac is the son of the promise. I mean, this son came miraculously when Abraham was 100 years old and his wife was 90. So, so Abraham goes step by step, one thing after another. And then on Mount Moriah, at the last moment, just before Abraham is ready to bring down the knife upon his son, God intervenes. God tells Abraham to stop and provides a ram to be sacrificed in Isaac's place. Very early picture of the Lamb of God, of Jesus Christ. But it's then in the following moments that God makes that promise to Abraham, promises to bless him and multiply his descendants. So the question that we can rightly ask, because that's something that has happened in the past, and not just for us, but even for the writer of Hebrews, the question we can ask is, has God kept that promise? If God is making promises, is, is he faithful? Is he trustworthy to keep those? You know, it's, it, it can be hard. One of, the, one of the 
promises he made was to bless Abraham. It can be hard to quantify blessing, can't it? It can be a tough thing to do, but there's something that has always intrigued me as, as, as we look back and, and say, well, has God kept that promise to Abraham? Uh, there, when we talk about the Nobel Prize, there have been, uh, uh, through history, 965 individual recipients of the Nobel Prize. At least 214 of those recipients have been Jews or, or have at least one Jewish parent. And that, that accounts for 22%. So 22% of Nobel Prize recipients are Jews or have uh, Jewish parents. Now, Jews comprise 0.2% of the world population. So that means that Jews have received the prize 100 times more frequently than would be expected. That's kind of interesting, isn't it? Now, I mean, God's blessing can't be limited to the Nobel Prize. It can't be measured by Nobel Prizes. But that single fact has always intrigued me. You know, is that a picture of God's blessing being poured out? You know, keeping this promise that he has made? I think, I think it might be. Uh, God also promised to Abraham that he would multiply his descendants. So we can look back and ask the question, has God kept that part of the promise? Um, estimates put the Jewish population today somewhere between 15 and 22 million. And, and that's even after what took place in World War II. That's after 6 million Jews, um, three-eighths of the total Jewish population, were killed in the Holocaust. And, and when you look at the rest of world history and, and the enemies of the Jews and what they seek and, and how those enemies have often surrounded them, it seems miraculous that they haven't been completely destroyed already. So, so if we look at the specific promise that God made to Abraham in Genesis 22, to bless him and multiply him, I believe God has shown himself to be trustworthy. Even in recent history, we can look back and see how God is still proving himself to be trustworthy. So that's one reason that we can, we can trust the promise maker is that he has shown himself to be. And the second reason that we're given in the text in Hebrews 6 is, is because God has sworn that he will carry out his promises. Now, we're familiar with a person swearing, taking an oath, right? Uh, it, it, it's been common among mankind for a long, long time. And the only reason mankind even makes oaths to begin with is because we are liars, I mean, really, that's why we have to make oaths, because we don't always tell the truth. And since we don't always tell the truth, we've had to come up with this way to try to give certainty to our words. So if I make my oath before God, or if I swear before God, then, then I'm essentially saying that the most authoritative person, uh, the most authoritative being in existence can vouch for what I'm saying, the only problem with that is even when we make an oath, we can still lie, <laughs> right? Just because we say it doesn't make it necessarily true. What is much better for us is to be people of integrity who consistently speak the truth. This is what Jesus talks about in uh, Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount. He, he, he calls us not to be people of oaths, but to be people of integrity instead. So the question then is, why would God make an oath? I mean, why would God say to Abraham in Genesis 22, by myself I have sworn? I mean, what's he doing there? 
what the writer of Hebrews seems to imply in, in verse uh, 17 is that God is utilizing the ways of man so to be as convincing to man as possible. He, he's, he's speaking our language in order to get the message across. Maybe is another way to say it. Because God's purposes and his nature are unchanged, those are the two unchangeable things spoken of in verse 18, his promises give us a rock-solid anchor for our hope. I mean, there's nobody greater that God could swear by. He, he does not lie, as, as the writer of Hebrews says, and so when he makes a promise, when he makes a statement, we can know that he is trustworthy. We can know that with certainty. He's not just the promise maker. He's the promise keeper. And so that then brings us to where we started this morning, verse, uh, verses 19 and 20. And so I'll read them again, now that we've got all that background. And just keep in mind all the things that we've just talked about as, as I read these verses one more time. So verse 19, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So we talked last week about, um, about com- coming before God's throne of grace with a posture that's faith-rooted, and, and we said, of course, that faith must be rooted in Jesus. It must rest in Jesus. Today we focus on coming before God's throne of grace with a posture that is, that is hope-anchored. And again, our hope must rest in Jesus. And, and the question might be, what, what's the difference between faith and hope? Two words that Christians use quite a bit common words that we use, what's the difference between faith and hope? And uh, as I was chewing on that, um, I I came across um, a way that John Piper described it, and I thought it was just so helpful, and and so I'll I'll share it with you. Um, John Piper says that that when it comes to faith, we ought to to think about faith as, as a big concept which focuses on our trust in God. So our, our faith in Jesus is a trust in him. And, and it's a trust that looks back at the past, it looks at the present, and it also looks at the future. So we, we have faith, we, we trust that what God says happened in the past did happen. We have faith, we, we trust that what, who, who God says we are right now is true, that that's real. We have faith that what God says lies ahead for us in the future will take place. So it's faith that it's a trust in God. Backward-looking, present-looking, forward-looking. Hope, Piper says, is a part of faith that is specifically forward-looking. Specifically forward-looking. So Christian hope is a confidence in God about the future. It is a hope that must rightly be grounded in God's promises to us about the future. So faith is, is trust in all of it, but hope is more specifically forward-looking. Our faith in Jesus, our faith in his atoning work on the cross, 
allows us to approach God right now with confidence. We trust that Jesus did die on the cross, that there is forgiveness there, that, that we are now righteous in God's sight. Our hope looks ahead to that time where we are going to one day be physically standing before the throne of God. That day is coming. Our hope looks ahead to that. So we remember that in the tabernacle, in the temple, there was God's throne. His mercy seat was contained inside that most holy place, that inner room in the temple. But that earthly location was only a copy of the heavenly one. Hebrews chapter 9 tells us that. It says that that we're told that on the death, uh, on his death on the cross, Jesus entered the heavenly most holy place and offered himself as a sacrifice before the throne of God. And so what Hebrews 6.19 is saying here is that we have hope enters into that inner place behind the curtain where where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. And it's talking about that throne of God in heaven. We have hope as it pertains to that. It's talking about that moment where we are going to stand before God's throne. And when that moment comes, our hope is surely and steadfastly anchored in God's promise to us that We will not be judged for our sins because that's been paid for already, but instead we'll be declared righteous and holy. That's the hope. Now, we've already been made righteous and holy by the blood of Jesus. That's true right now, but that moment where we will stand before God's throne, physically be there, that's still coming. And our hope is looking ahead to that that point where we will be there. Because of God's promises to us, we have hope as it pertains to that day. We confidently look ahead to that day in the future. We know that our great high priest has gone before us. He's a forerunner on our behalf. He's already made sacrifice for our sins. And so we can have hope that that day will also be one where we receive grace and mercy from God. I was thinking about uh, the song uh, written back in 2001, the song I Can Only Imagine. Um, uh, it's uh, released by, by the band Mercy Me. It's written by Bart Millard. Um, since it was released, it's only gone on to become the most uh, played song in the history of Christian radio. And it's only the best-selling Christian song of all time. So a little bit of success with that song. And because of that, I'm pretty confident we've heard it. Um, but, but just in case you haven't, it, it's a song that looks ahead to that moment, to that moment after this life when a person first stands before God. It tries to give voice to a moment that we can only imagine. That's where the title comes from. But what's, what's striking about the lyrics of the song, and, and, and I think what is right in line with God's promise to his sons and daughters is that nothing at all is mentioned in that song about judgment upon sin. Worship, dancing, awestruck silence, it's all, it's all in the lyrics there. But there's not judgment talked about in the song. And that's what our hope is anchored in, in these promises of God. Sin is judged. 
But because of Christ, he has taken that for those of us that are in him. As we talked about last week, who are faith-rooted in Christ. So Jesus, coming to earth as a human, living a perfect life, offering his life on the cross in our place, allows us to imagine that day and have hope in it. Look forward to it, not, not be fearful of it, which is what we should be if we are standing there in our sin. But standing there in Christ, we have great hope. And it's because of our great high priest. So we can draw confidently near to God's throne of grace. Again, not in fear, but in hope, anchored in God's promise of forgiveness and righteousness through his son. Isn't that a great hope to have? That's a hope we can't find anywhere else in this world. We might look for it, we might try to find it, but it's hope that is only found in God and the promises that he has made to us and in his keeping of his promises. So let's stand together. Let's come before God. We're going to worship him again through song, sing about this hope that we have in him. Let's come before him in prayer and give him thanks for it. God, we are a people of hope. And I'm so thankful that the hope that we have is surely and steadfastly anchored in you. You are the one who is not just the promise maker, but the promise keeper. You've proven that throughout history, throughout all of creation. We can continue to see that today. And so, God, we're so thankful for it. We're thankful that the hope that we have in your promises is a confident hope. God, I pray, I pray for all of us here. For those of us that, that have found that hope, may we rest in it. God, we, may we remember the promises that you've made. Help us to do that, especially when, when, when things weigh on us, when, when, when we're tempted to be distracted and look away from you and the hope that you give us. Keep us focused on you. And for any here who have not put their faith in you, who've searched for hope but not found it, God, I pray that they would, that they would know this morning where it's found. That we can approach you. We can stand before you with confidence to find grace and mercy, but it's only in you. God, for any here this morning that haven't found that, would you bring them to it? Would you speak to them and draw them to yourself in a powerful way this morning? God, we praise you. We praise you that you are unchanging, that you never lie, that you are steadfast and true. And because of that, we want to worship you. We don't sing because music is playing and words are on a screen. We sing because of who you are and because you are worthy of praise and worship. So God, we're thankful this morning. We love you. We pray all this in your name. Amen.